You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 156, The Siege of Fort Henry. We're still working our way through August 1777 as we've done for many episodes now, but so much has been happening in that month. Much of it has been in upstate New York as General Burgoyne made his way from Canada toward Albany. I've mentioned in earlier episodes that that was a big part of the British war effort, making use of their Indian allies throughout North America. The relationship between the British government and the North American tribes during this period is one that is often ignored or misunderstood by casual students of the Revolutionary War. Many have expressed a belief that the British pretty much ignored the Indians and kept separate from them most of the time. Every so often, a pompous British general would give some condescending speech to the native tribes when the British needed them to go to war or take more of their land, but otherwise there was not much interaction. That was not the case. Like any effective empire, the British government maintained regular relations with the native tribes through Indian agents. I've already mentioned Sir William Johnson, who was an Iroquois agent for many decades and who was important during the French and Indian War. I've also mentioned his son and his nephew, John Johnson and Guy Johnson, who continued his work during the Revolution and who were actively involved in supporting the Burgoyne campaign in 1777. These are only a couple of examples of hundreds of men who worked as Indian agents for the British Empire. Indian agents were effectively ambassadors, whose purpose was to maintain relations between the British and local tribes. But unlike most ambassadors who leave the home country for a few years, go to work in a foreign embassy, and then return home, Indian agents generally devoted their entire lives to the position. These are men who had been adopted into tribes, often took native wives and began families whose children would also serve as Indian agents themselves. They lived fully within the tribes, sharing the same hardships and challenges that faced the rest of the tribe members. This brings me to another canard. Many people tend to think of the North American Indians as a nomadic people who lived as savages and had minimal interactions with the European colonists, and that most of those interactions were in warfare. This also was not the case. There were some tribes who did move about more than others, although these tended to be further west and typically involved following regular annual patterns of migration for food gathering. But a great many tribes lived in one place. Many natives owned private land, built plantations, and lived much like the colonists. Some even owned black slaves. 
They often grew cash crops for sale in Britain and had extensive interactions with the neighboring colonists. I'm not saying natives lived in the same integrated communities as the European settlers. That was pretty rare. But the groups did have a pretty close relationship, in most cases, for purposes of trade and to prevent any disputes from getting out of hand. In part because of the long-standing relationships of British agents with their tribes, most native groups tended to support the British. This was not because the agents just regularly provided the tribes with gifts and other benefits, which they did, but also because the agents convinced many tribal leaders, truthfully, that the British government was the one thing standing between these tribes and groups of colonists who wanted to push them off their lands. Colonists had for decades been trying to push westward and settle new lands as their colonial populations grew. The main thing that prevented them from doing so was the policy from London that prevented Western settlements that would likely result in more warfare with the natives. Uh, Way back in episode 4, I gave an overview of the tribes that were relevant to the colonists during this era. For a quick recap, the Algonquin-speaking tribes had been pushed back into Canada in the decades before the war. Their rivals, the Iroquois, were centered in upstate New York. The Iroquois Confederacy was made up of six tribes, which had come to dominate the territory as far south as North Carolina and as far west as Illinois, by developing a trading relationship first with the Dutch and then with the British, which gave them access to guns and other technology. This allowed them to dominate their neighbors. As I've discussed in recent episodes, the revolution divided the Iroquois with many of the larger tribes ultimately siding with the British. Two smaller tribes backed the Patriots. This schism led to the end of the Iroquois Confederacy as a regional power. Historically, the Iroquois claimed neutrality, but tended to favor the British and support British policies. They took on the role of chief negotiator with the British on behalf of other tribes that they claimed to control. Other mid-Atlantic tribes, such as the Delaware, Mingo, and Shawnee, had been forced to move west as Iroquois ceded their lands to the colonists. These tribes tried to keep the peace most of the time because they simply did not have the power to resist without being destroyed. However, they were generally hostile to the colonists, who had pushed them off their native lands and were always looking for an opportunity to prevent further encroachments. Farther to the south, the Cherokee dominated the areas in the western Carolinas. The Cherokee Nation had risen up and attacked in early 1776 at the instigation of British agents. In that case, the Patriots had crushed the Cherokee and forced them to cede even more land and move further west. For more on that, see episode 102. South of the Cherokee were the Creek, who had some involvement in Georgia but largely left the fighting to the Seminole in Florida, who supported the British. As I discussed back in episode 101, the British had tried to involve native warriors as part of what became known as the Saratoga Campaign into upstate New York. More than a thousand warriors participated directly with the British and Germans in that campaign. But aside from those warriors, British agents were also attempting to stir up other warriors that would hopefully distract the Americans 
and force them to deploy more soldiers elsewhere. This would improve the chances for Burgoyne's expedition in upstate New York. Beginning in late 1776 and into 1777, Delaware and Mingo warriors began a series of attacks on settlers in the Ohio Valley. They did not have the numbers to strike eastward at larger settlements, but frontier villages in what is today Ohio and Kentucky fell victim to a great many attacks. One common tactic would be to attack an isolated farm or just kill a farmer out in his field. When the local militia assembled and tried to chase down the killers, they would retreat, giving the indication that they were a small group of renegades. They would let the militia chase them for miles until they led the militia into an ambush of a much larger group of Indians. The warriors would then fall on the militia, which had ventured too far from the protection of their forts. To combat the native warrior threat, General Washington assigned General Edward Hand to protect the American frontier. General Hand moved his command to Fort Pitt, modern-day Pittsburgh. Edward Hand had been born in Ireland in 1744. He attended Trinity College in Dublin, where he received enough medical training to become a surgeon's mate with the British Army. In 1767, his regiment sailed to Philadelphia, where then Ensign Hand was stationed at Fort Pitt with the British Army. In 1774, he had resigned his commission and moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to begin a medical practice. A year later, he got married. Around that same time, he took up a leading role in Pennsylvania's Patriot Movement, forming a regiment of associators. Hand was among the first Pennsylvanians to join the Siege of Boston. He took a commission as a lieutenant colonel in Colonel William Thompson's 1st Pennsylvania Regiment, one of the first regiments of riflemen to join the New England Army after George Washington took command, and eventually became colonel of the 1st Continental Regiment. During the British invasion of New York in 1776, Hand had commanded a group of 25 soldiers who held off 4,000 British trying to land at Throgs Neck, New York. See episode 112 for more details. Now, that defense was only possible because of the British leadership's ridiculous choice of a landing site, but still a pretty impressive feat. Remember that Colonel Hand was second in command of a brigade defending Trenton when General Cornwallis was attempting to retake that town. After French General Fermoy simply turned his horse and ran away, it was Colonel Hand who took command and commanded the delaying action that prevented the British from entering Trenton until shortly before dusk, thus making the Second Battle of Trenton a success for the Patriots. A few months after his leadership in the Princeton campaign, Congress promoted Colonel Hand to Brigadier General and sent him to Fort Pitt in his first independent command. Congress tasked Hand with handling the hostile Indian attacks all along the frontier. Congress had planned to provide General Hand with 2,000 soldiers and supplies to embark on a campaign through Indian territory and wipe out tribal villages and food stores, as had been done in the Cherokee War in the Western Carolinas a few months earlier. By the summer of 1777, the native violence in the Ohio Valley 
was not seen as pervasive enough to justify an all-out attack by the Patriots. At the time, only a small number of warriors were on the warpath. An all-out assault on native lands might actually increase the level of hostility against frontier settlements. As a result, Congress called off the campaign, but left General Hand at Fort Pitt with a smaller garrison, ready to respond as needed. At the same time, British agents were doing their best to motivate local tribes in the Ohio Valley to attack Patriot settlements. Agents visited tribal councils, handed out muskets, scalping knives, war paint, and other necessities for a campaign, and encouraged the warriors to attack. In Detroit, British Colonel John Hamilton, no relation to Alexander Hamilton, offered to pay for Patriot scalps if warriors returned with them. As a result, he became known among the Indians as Hair Buyer. In some areas, native warriors took control of frontier regions, guaranteeing the safety of anyone who declared allegiance to the king. All others were told to leave within a week or be massacred. Many patriots fled the area as a result. Much of this happened in western New York and had been expected to be applied further south in the Ohio Valley. But after the defeat at Fort Stanwix, most of the native leaders abandoned the effort. Even so, local tribes, the Wyandot, Shawnee, Mingo, and Delaware, did continue their attacks in the Ohio Valley. Settlers who remained typically remained in or near forts that provided protection from smaller Indian raids. One such fort was Fort Henry in what is today Wheeling, West Virginia. Colonists had built the fort in 1774 during the violence with the natives that eventually became Lord Dunmore's War. See episode 144. At the time, it was called Fort Fincastle, which was one of the royal governor Lord Dunmore's titles, the Viscount Fincastle. After independence, Patriots renamed the fort after the new governor of Virginia, Patrick Henry. It was a small wooden stockade meant to hold a few dozen people. It was bounded by a river on two sides, as well as a ravine on the third side, meaning it could only be attacked from the east. General Han sent out a warning in early August that there was a good chance of an Indian attack. Most of the locals took shelter in Fort Henry, and local militia began patrolling for Indian warriors. After several weeks of finding nothing, and with the harvest season upon them, many locals began to return home. On September 1st, 1777, one local man, who we only know as Mr. Boyd, and his slave rode out to tend their horses. They ran into an ambush near the fort, where six warriors attacked them. Boyd was shot dead, but his slave returned to the fort. Receiving word of the attack, Captain Samuel Mason and his company of 14 soldiers rode out from Fort Henry to track down the small group of Indian attackers. The company found the six warriors retreating into the fog and pursued them. Suddenly, the troop found itself surrounded by a much larger Indian ambush into which the smaller group had lured them. The Indians massacred and scalped the militia, with only two of them managing to escape and run back to the fort pursued by warriors. Hearing the sound of gunfire, another militia captain at the fort, Captain Joseph Ogle, 
rode out with another company to provide support to Captain Mason's returning company. However, Ogle's men ran into the same raiding party that had already massacred Mason's company and were now turning on them. Ogle and three of his soldiers were also killed as the remainder scrambled back into Fort Henry. The situation inside the fort was pretty desperate. With most of the militia defenders killed in the initial ambush, the fort had only 12 men to defend the fort and about 80 women and children. The attackers were led by a Wyandot chief named Pamoken, with about 200 warriors from various local tribes. They also had with them an Indian agent. As the warriors took up positions around the fort and waved the scalps of the garrison's former comrades, the British agent marched up to the fort with a drummer signaling parley. He announced that he could guarantee the king's protection to those inside the fort if they surrendered immediately. Otherwise, the warriors would storm the fort and kill everyone. The fort commander, Colonel David Shepard, refused the offer. With that, the warriors attempted to storm the fort by battering down the main door. They were unable to do so. Both sides kept up a pretty heavy rate of fire for the rest of the day and overnight. The twelve defenders inside the fort had women reloading their guns as they shot in order to keep up a higher rate of fire than their smaller numbers would ordinarily allow. The following day, September 2nd, the warriors attempted to use a battering ram to knock down the front gate, but the door held. They also tried to set fire to the fort walls, but again the defenders drove them back. Late in the day, the warriors pulled back to organize for a final assault on the fort. Things looked pretty bleak for those inside the fort, but that evening a group of militia reinforcements arrived by canoe. Colonel Andrew Swearingen and 14 soldiers slipped into the fort under the cover of darkness, thus doubling the size of the garrison. A short time later, a group of 40 mounted militia rushed past the surprise warriors and into the fort. The fort defenders opened the doors to let in the reinforcements. However, as the Indians pursued, they had to shut the doors before the commander of the reinforcements, Major Samuel McCulloch, could make it inside. McCulloch turned his force toward the pursuing Indians and managed to dash through their lines without being harmed. As he rode past his attackers, he ran into another Indian raiding party, which left him surrounded. Warriors surrounded McCulloch on three sides, with a cliff preventing him from escaping on the fourth. Considering his options, McCulloch opted for the cliff. According to contemporary stories, McCulloch spurred his horse and leapt off the cliff. The Indians rushed up to the edge, expecting to see a dead horse and rider at the bottom. Instead, they saw McCulloch had somehow landed safely and ridden away. The event later became celebrated in local lore as McCulloch's Leap. Now, if you're skeptical that a horse and rider could jump off a 300-foot cliff and simply ride away, you're not alone. My suspicion is that it was a very steep hill, which McCulloch was able to ride down with a combination of good horsemanship and luck. In any event, he did survive, and he did escape. The warriors returned their attention to the fort, where they had once faced 12 defenders and now faced more than 60. Although they still outnumbered the garrison by more than 3 to 1, 
Indians were never particularly good at assaulting forts and did not want to press their luck. They spent the night dancing and demonstrating in front of the fort to terrify the occupants. The next day, the warriors burned all of the outbuildings, crops, animals, and anything else of value that they could not take with them. As they did this, some of the attackers continued to fire on the fort, but did not attempt an all-out assault on the walls as they had done the two previous days. Chief Pamoakin withdrew his warriors and went in search of other targets. Casualties of the siege are again contradictory by source, but somewhere between 15 and 25 militia were killed in the attack, with another five or so wounded. The Indians suffered at least one dead and nine wounded, although since the natives carried off their dead and wounded and did not always keep very good records, casualties might have been higher. Following the siege, Virginia's Governor Henry and General Hand both wanted to begin the campaign against the native villages that they had planned months earlier. However, Congress simply could not spare the soldiers at the time. Again, this was in the middle of the Saratoga campaign in New York and with General Howe's assault on Philadelphia going on at the same time. Those campaigns took precedence over the frontier. The Patriot Offensive in revenge for Fort Henry would have to wait. The campaign against the natives would take place the following year in 1778, but that is going to have to wait for a future episode. For the moment, General Hand retrenched his small force at Fort Pitt and waited for the right time to act. Next week, General Howe finally lands his army in Maryland and begins his advance on Philadelphia. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer, I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bell's books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N-Books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to say thanks to my Alexander Hamilton Club supporter on Patreon, Trey Nance, and also to George Davis, who supports this podcast at the Hamilton Club level as well. Also, thanks to Tyson France, who supports the show on Patreon at the Robert Morris Circle level. 
Tyson, of course, also runs the Liberty & Co. website, where you can purchase items with an American Revolution theme. He offers free shipping and will give you 20% off if you use the code AMREV when checking out. This week, we focused on the Western War against Native Americans that was raging at the same time the Americans were focused on General Burgoyne's invasion from Canada and, as we will see next week, General Howe's campaign to take Philadelphia especially because the Saratoga campaign and the Philadelphia campaign were taking place at the same time, the Indian campaign typically gets ignored by history books from this era. While I focused on Fort Henry this week, there were probably hundreds of minor frontier skirmishes between settlers and Native Americans around this time. Because no one individual battle was particularly large, And because, in 1777, these frontier fights usually did not involve British regulars or Continentals, attention of the leaders was mostly elsewhere. But if you lived in the region, either as a settler or a Native American, this brutal warfare and violence was an ongoing nightmare. The violence was brutal, pervasive, and seemingly without end. If you want to read more about this often underreported part of the Revolutionary War, you'll want to read this week's book recommendation. It is called Year of the Hangman, George Washington's Campaign Against the Iroquois by Glenn F. Williams. Now, if you try to find it, be careful. There are at least three books called Year of the Hangman. That was the nickname given to 1777, because the sevens sort of looked like a hangman's gallows, and because the British thought it would be the year that they would crush the rebellion and hang all the traitors. So, as I said, there's at least three books about 1777 that use the title Year of the Hangman. Only one of them is about the fighting with Native Americans, and that's the book by Glenn Williams. The book covers more than just 1777. It begins with a chapter about Dunmore's War, which took place in 1774, and which I covered back in episode 44, and then goes on to cover the various battles through 1779. The book is about 300 pages, not counting notes and index. It is a good read, and full of interesting facts that most other books on the Revolution do not cover. The author, Glenn Williams, is a historian with the National Museum of the U.S. Army Project. He also wrote another book devoted to Dunmore's War. I was fortunate enough to meet Mr. Williams when he spoke about that book, the one on Dunmore's War, at the American Revolution Roundtable of South Jersey, uh, either earlier this year or late last year. I think that this book is particularly relevant today, as I write this episode in the summer of 2020. We've seen a number of Revolutionary War monuments defaced or destroyed by protesters who painted, among other things, that the founders were guilty of genocide. While I don't agree with this point, and certainly don't agree with damaging historical monuments, I think it is important that we face the topic head-on and that we understand better what actually happened at that time. Even if the 18th century leaders did not want to wipe out Native American people, they did wage rather brutal campaigns of annihilation against tribes that were often just as brutal to those who they thought threatened their lands. Over several generations, of course, 
we can see a more destructive pattern that not only led to Native American displacement, but largely the complete destruction of life as they knew it. Although we today are prone to judge those actions harshly, I think it is important to understand the mindset of those involved and what motivated them to act as they did. Williams's book, Year of the Hangman, examines the Indian Wars that took place during the first part of the American Revolution, and in my view provides an objective and factual description of what happened. So, if you want to read more on this topic, please give this book a try. For another perspective, you may want to check out this week's online recommendation. It is an ebook on archive.org called History of the Early Settlement and Indian Wars of Western Virginia by Wills de Haas. This is a public domain book that was first published in 1851 and covers the events of the Indian Wars through 1795. It does show some typical 19th century bias, but it also does give a thorough and unflinching look at the native conflicts that raged in this era before, during, and just after the Revolution. You can, of course, search for the book History of the Early Settlement and Indian Wars of Western Virginia on archive.org. Or you can simply use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. I also want to remind everyone that I offer a written blog of each podcast episode in case you want to go back and look something up that I discussed on the podcast. With each blog episode, I include a longer list of books and online resources for the topic that I discussed that week. So if you want to go beyond the one book and one online recommendation I make each week, you can find more suggestions at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.